Well, a very good morning to everybody. It is a real privilege to be in your midst today. And as was mentioned earlier on by Sky in the announcements, I did have the privilege of visiting a few years ago, and that was in Nelson Bay, if memory serves me correctly, and that was at the men's retreat. And I had a wonderful time getting to know some of the men here in this congregation. And your pastor, Rob, has been a very dear friend to me and to my family the last number of years. So back when we were living in Melbourne, um, Rob stayed with us for a time, and it was such a blessing to get to know him. And I am so thankful that uh, he is your pastor, and he loves the word of the Lord, and he loves the people of God as well. Well, please take this opportunity with me to come before the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive right into this message this morning. Let us pray. Our gracious and mighty Father, I want to thank you so much for the privilege that you've granted us today to come together this first Sunday of the year and to begin our time worshipping and adoring you. You are the worthy one. You are the one who is all glorious and mighty. We are thankful for the grace that you have shown to us in your son, Christ Jesus. And now as we take this opportunity to open up your word, I ask and pray that you would encourage us all. You know the deepest struggles that we have. You know the burdens that weigh us down. You know all that is before us, the things that we don't even know that we're going to face this year. But you know it all. And I pray that your word today would speak into our lives, would encourage us, would place our eyes upon the true eternal prize. Help us to behold Christ Jesus, our Lord. I ask now for your blessing as your word is opened. I pray that it would be clear, and I ask that your spirit would apply it to our hearts. And I do pray this in Christ's name. Amen. An energetic little creature is the ring-tailed lemur. And apparently, the natives and even some zookeepers have had a lot of trouble gathering this cute little bundle of joy. Uh, one of the strategies that they've done in order to capture the ring-tailed lemur is to find its favorite melon. Because inside of this melon are some tasty, juicy seeds. And the strategy is to take this melon and drill a small hole on the top, knowing that this little ring-tailed lemur has this tiny little hand. And the idea is that when you drill this hole into the melon, the lemur will go find this melon. He will squeeze his hand inside of this melon to get some of the goodness in there, those juicy little seeds. And as his hand goes in there, he will get a fistful, clenching his fist, but suddenly finds that he cannot get his fist out unless he lets go of the seeds. And suddenly, the ringtail lemur has a choice. He can release the seeds that he loves and he will be free, or he can hold on to them and there he is stuck. And allegedly what happens is he will not let go. He just screams and screams and screams. And I'm assuming the scream means, I want my seeds. I want to enjoy the goodness inside of this melon. And you know what's rather interesting about that? Is there, the ring-tailed lemur has a grip on what he 
wants. He has a grip on something that he has a strong craving and desire for. But before he knows it, the truth is those seeds actually have a grip on him. He's unable to be released. And isn't it amazing that there are many things in this world, in this life that we live, that we want to get a grip on. We want to accumulate certain things. We want to have control over certain things. But before we know it, silently and subtly, those things will have a grip on us. Well, that's the message that I want to share with you today. And it's taken from Luke chapter 12. And we've seen this passage read for us just a moment ago. My message this morning is simply titled, The Rich Fool. And what I want to talk about is this. Possessions are a gift from God. Possessions can be used in amazing ways. The point of my message today is not to talk about the evil of possessions, that it's horrible to have things. But what I want to talk about is this. It's not wrong to have a grip on possessions, but what is wrong is when possessions and anything of this world grips you. That is the heart of what I want to consider today. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, and we're going to be looking, beginning in verse 13, down to verse 21. And as we come to this passage, I want to remind you of where we're at in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, at this point in the Gospel of Luke, it actually begins way back in chapter 9, where Jesus sets his sight on Jerusalem. Jesus knows that he has come into this world to not only live a life of obedience to the law of God, but Jesus knows that he was born to die. He is going to Jerusalem where he will be crucified, where he will be the only savior of sinners. So from Luke chapter 9 all the way to the end of the book, we have a road trip to Jerusalem. And as Jesus is on this road trip, he preaches the message of the kingdom of God. He performs miracles. And his message and his miracles are always pointing to the reality that he is king. And he is the only one who can usher in a kingdom in which we will have peace with God. It's in the midst of this road trip to Jerusalem that Jesus is proclaiming this message. And as Jesus is preaching, we suddenly have this question come out of the crowd. And I find this question rather interesting because the question has absolutely nothing to do with anything that Jesus has been preaching on. And I must say, as a preacher, I find a little bit of comfort in this. Because every now and then you'll pour your heart out preaching the word of God and someone will ask you a question that just seems so irrelevant to everything you've been saying. And if Jesus, the master teacher, can teach and preach and have someone ask a question like this, there is a little bit of comfort in that. But nonetheless, the question that is being asked may appear irrelevant. And on the surface it is. But of course, Jesus is the sovereign saviour. And he sees in this question an opportunity to expose in us the wickedness of our hearts and the evil of things gripping us. Put yourself in the situation. You're in the crowd. Jesus has been proclaiming the truth. 
And suddenly, in verse 13, somebody shouts out the question, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. There is a family dispute. I don't know the background of this individual. I don't know what it was like with his brother. But you know what it's like to be in this world. You know the experience of family tensions and family dynamics. And here we have a man who had a problem. His problem right now was a dispute between him and his brother. There is an inheritance for the family and he is experiencing the problem in which there is not going to be an equal share of this inheritance. So he bypasses everything that Jesus has been preaching on. He moves past the points of the kingdom of God that Jesus has been proclaiming, and he calls out to Jesus' as teacher. He evidently views Jesus as a respected individual, a man who has authority, a rabbi of the day, and he wants Jesus to sort out his problem. He wants Jesus to come into his life situation and sort out the argument between him and his brother. And it's all over an inheritance. Now, I want to point out for you a little bit of a roadmap of what we're going to look at in this passage. That's the backdrop. It begins with a problem, a question that is being asked, a proposal. Jesus, please sort out the family difficulty that I'm in. There is a tension, there is money, there is an inheritance, and there is injustice happening within our family. Jesus, come and sort it out and tell him it's 50-50. So Jesus proceeds to respond to this man. And what I want you to see in the response of Jesus is three things. Jesus, first of all, responds with a stunning pronouncement. He just immediately cuts through the issue and declares a divine pronouncement in this situation. But then, and this is where we'll spend most of our time, Jesus secondly moves and gives a parable. He's going to tell a story with a hidden truth. And then after Jesus gives this parable, he is going to summarize all of this with a very simple, punchy statement. We could call this the purpose or the principle. It begins with a pronouncement. He moves to this parable and ends with this closing purpose. So let's begin first of all, with the pronouncement. How does Jesus respond to this man who just shouts out in the crowd and says, fix up our family situation. Help us divide this inheritance equally. Jesus begins by saying, man. I want you to note that that's actually rather abrupt. Jesus is not being rude, but nor is he being very intimate either. He doesn't call out and say, what is your name? By saying man, he is highlighting something about this individual. He is highlighting that he truly is human. He is a created individual. He is a son of Adam. He is a human being. And you'll see the significance of this in just a moment. But Jesus immediately reminding this individual of what he is in this world. Man, who made me a judge? or an arbitrator over you. 
Now, we mustn't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus isn't um, removing himself from his responsibility as divine judge. It's true that Jesus says, who made me judge over you? I'm not your judge. I'm not the one who's going to sort out your issues. Because after all, don't we learn in John chapter 5 that the Father has given authority to the Son and all judgment has been given to the Son? Jesus is the just judge. Uh, Do we not read in other passages of Scripture, particularly in the book of Revelation, that Christ who takes the scroll from the right hand of the Father proceeds to the throne and he is the one who sends out angelic beings to issue judgment upon this world? We read in Revelation chapter 20 of a day in the future in which all will be assembled before the throne of God and judgment will be given. And I believe Christ will be the one that gives that judgment. Jesus is not denying that. Jesus is the judge, but the judgment that Jesus has been granted is a judgment that takes place in the end times. It's a judgment concerning our eternal destiny. He stands as the judge of the living and the dead. Here Jesus is distancing himself from a false expectation of Jesus in this world. This man has turned Jesus into a Jesus of his own making. He wants Jesus to deal with the issues of the day. He wants Jesus to deal with the trivial matters of life here and now. Jesus here is essentially saying, I have not come into this world to bring property to people, but rather I have come to bring people to God. That's why I am here. That is my divine mission. So this pronouncement that Jesus makes is a very strong one. He even goes on to say, take heed. Listen very carefully to my words. Beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. This man found himself in the midst of a family dispute. It was a real problem for this individual. But Jesus cut past the surface and said, I want you to beware of the issue underneath your dispute. I want you to beware of covetousness. This is number 10 of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. Covetousness is a sin in which we are not satisfied with the goodness of God. And covetousness shows its ugly face in the idea of us being obsessed with wanting to have more. It might be a little, it might be a lot, but it is us not being satisfied with God's goodness, His provisions, and having this driving desire to just want a little bit more. Covetousness takes place When we take a grip of something, and before we know it, that thing takes a grip of us. A little girl once got given some money from her dad. He gave her $2. Two $1 coins. 
And he said to her, I want you to know that one of these coins is for you. You can do with it whatever you please. And her eyes lit up. You can picture it, right? But he said, but the other dollar, that belongs to God. And you need to use that for his glory. So the little girl with great trust and eagerness takes these two $1 coins and she runs to the lolly shop because there she's going to buy some things that she's going to be really excited about. And as she runs to the lolly shop, she trips over and one of the dollar coins falls out of her hand, rolls down the footpath and goes down the drain. And without missing a beat, she says, sorry, Lord, I dropped your dollar. You can see in that little story how so quickly something you have a grip of grips you. And that might be true for a little girl losing a dollar coin in a lolly store, but how much more true is that for us in the things of this world? It might not be money, but it might be something else. It might be a passion. It might be your plans. It might be trying to satisfy your needs. It might be the preservation of our lives. It might be whatever it is, there will be something that we begin to take a grip of. It's something we pursue, but silently and subtly before we know it, that thing takes a grip of us and our lives are consumed by it. We cannot let go of it. It is holding us, and before we know it, we are being driven by our desires. Jesus looks at this occasion where there was a dispute over an inheritance, and Jesus cuts past all the fog, all the noise on the outside, and he goes right to the heart of the matter, and he says, I want to warn all of you in this crowd. Do not be gripped by covetousness. This now moves us to the next point, and that is the parable. But I want you to see as we move to the parable a very important thing for us to remember. We can be like that man in the crowd. Anytime we have a consuming passion in the name of Christ for things that have nothing to do with our mission in this world. What I mean by that is we as Christians can get so distracted by the things that this world is focused on. And before we know it, we even do that in the name of Christianity. We expect Jesus to be working in the midst of that. The world has all sorts of focal points, all sorts of priorities. And one of the great strategies of the evil one is to have us hoodwinked, to play us into thinking that if we are only focused and consuming ourselves with the issues of the day and we attach Jesus in that, somehow Christianizing it and making it look like this is honoring to the Lord, we are focusing on matters that have nothing to do with the mission of the church in this world. Jesus made it clear to this man, I have not come to be someone who organizes and deals with bringing property to people. I'm here to bring people to God. And that's why we're here as the church. 
We are here to pour salt on a putrid society. We are here to shine light in the midst of darkness so that we show people the loveliness of Christ, the only one who can bring us to glory. We can be so easily distracted and we can even do that in the name of Christianity. Remember, we are here to follow Christ, the Savior of sinners. That is to be our consuming passion. And Jesus reminds the crowd of this. But he now moves to the parable. This parable is designed to really drive home the pronouncement that he's made. Beware of covetousness was the divine pronouncement. Beware of selfishness. So Jesus proceeds to tell a story. And you need to remember when you read the parables of Jesus... These parables are designed both to reveal the truth of God to those who have ears to hear. But they're also designed to conceal the truth to those who are stubborn, to those who refuse to look to the Lord. So with this genius story, Jesus goes on and talks about a story that has one character. And I want you to really notice that there's no accident that in this story, there is just only one character, no one else. And as you read through this parable, and I'll go ahead and read it, I want you to notice the emphasis here. He is going to repeat the word I six times. Add to that the word myself is going to be in there. This is a man who's got the me monster inside of him. His three favorite people in the world are me, myself, and I. All right? Look at the arrogance. Look at how consumed he is. And notice there's no one else in the story. It's just one person who is consumed with themselves. We're told the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. First of all, we're introduced to a prosperous man, a very rich man. This guy is cashed up. But this very wealthy man has a problem. The problem is he has come into sudden wealth and he doesn't know what to do with it. He has this great field. He has yielded many crops and he has so much stuff. So much so he's got nowhere to put it. You sort of imagine somebody who has a mountain of cash and they can swim through it, right? This is the dream. This guy is sitting pretty. Everything is working out extremely well for him. But the problem is he has all this wealth. What is he going to do with it? Where is he going to put it? Where is he going to store it? He doesn't want to give it away. He wants to accumulate it. He wants to live the easy life. And there is a sense in which it would be 
pretty bad if he just suddenly sells it all because if he puts it all on the market and saturates the market, the product could come down in value and he loses some of the great wealth that he has. So he comes up with a plan. And the plan is, I'm just going to build bigger barns. All I have to do is build more storage space and then I can put my wealth in that storage space, I can accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and I'll be okay. And the goal for this man is I want to live a life of ease. So the man proceeds to do all of this. Again, I want to emphasize the problem of this individual. He says, I. What shall I do? I will do this. I will pull down. I will say to my soul, this man is consumed with himself. And the first thing I want you to notice about this man is what he's not doing. Notice the difference between this man who looks at all the wealth that he has and he pats himself on the back. He looks at his wealth, his possessions, and he just simply wants to accumulate for himself. Contrast that with an amazing prayer of David. In the book of First Chronicles, chapter 29, David's son Solomon is about to be anointed as king. And in preparation for the anointing of Solomon as king, offerings are brought in celebration at the temple. And David prays this prayer. In 1 Chronicles 29, David acknowledges that all riches come from you, he says to the Lord. He goes on to say that all that we have is from you. Think of the words of David in Psalm 24 and verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything that is in it. There is a humility in those statements. There is a recognition that God is the one who owns all things. God is the one who gives. God is the one who takes away. But this recognition of God and his provision, God and his sovereign providence is completely missing from the man in the parable. This man is only him. Everything that he has, he's earned. Everything that he has, he's produced. Everything that he has comes as a result of his brilliance. He is only thinking about himself. And for this reason, there's no surprise that this man needs more. He needs more space. He needs to preserve what he has. What's missing from this man's thinking is the Lord. He is only thinking of himself. He's thinking of the things of this world. He is consumed with these things. And we see so clearly in this passage that this man has been gripped by his possessions. He cannot let go. His hand is in the melon. He's got the seeds and it has now gripped him. But this is a huge melon. It has completely crippled him and he can't see it. What's happened as a result of this individual's thinking is he has short-sightedness. The man truly is living his best life now. He is setting himself up. He is giving himself every comfort he can to experience satisfaction here and now in this life. He states in verse 19, Soul, 
He talks to himself, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now look, there's nothing wrong with enjoying goods. There's nothing wrong with resting. There's nothing wrong with being satisfied. But what's missing from this man's plans in life is the Lord. He is only consumed with himself and he is only consumed with his priority to set up his life so that he can experience comfort here and now. After Jesus states this, he goes on and declares something very full on. He states at the end of the parable in verse 20, after this man is sitting back, proud, happy with himself, the Lord declares, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? This man had calculated everything. He had it all planned. He knew that he could accumulate this and live the rest of his life with ease. But there was one thing he did not add to the equation of his life. And that is this, your life is but a mist. You do not know what tomorrow brings. He did not know that that night when he sat there in good health with great wealth, that that night the Lord would require of him his soul. And this is a great reminder for every single one of us. It does not matter how wealthy you are, how set up you are, how Uh, protected you are in this world, there is nothing in this world that is going to stop that day that is appointed to every human being. According to Hebrews 9 and verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. Every human being, with the exception of those who are alive at the moment when Jesus Christ returns, will die. It doesn't matter how much you have, how healthy you are, who you are, you will die. And that was removed from this man's equation. He did not consider that. He had everything lined up, all his ducks lined up in a row. He was holding on to everything tightly, so tightly that it was actually holding on to him tightly, and it blinded him to things that truly matter. Things in this life matter, but they are not of eternal benefit. People will often hold on to their popularity, but guess what? There will always be someone more popular than you. Some people hold on to their appearance but you will get old. Some people hold on to their possessions, but there will always be someone with more possessions or you will lose your possessions. All of these things is just like holding sand that disintegrates in your hand. These things will get a grip of you. And this man is called a fool. Why is he called a fool? That's a very strong word of Jesus. Jesus here says, God declares to this man, fool. He's a fool because Psalm 14 and verse 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. This man was living like an atheist. But Christians can do that too. 
The people of God can do that too. We might not say we're atheists. We might not say there is no God, but we may be a practical atheist. We may live like there is no God. That is living a life that does not take into consideration the Lord. When we start living for ourselves without living for him, we are being foolish. And that's exactly what Jesus here is addressing. Now let's now move to the point, the purpose of this entire passage. Jesus summarizes this up in verse 21. And as we move into this final point, this is the real takeaway I want for all of us this morning. Jesus now says, So, after giving the pronouncement, beware of covetousness, after giving the parable of the rich fool, Jesus says, So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The point Jesus here is making is that if you are living for treasure, if you are living for things, if you are living for safety, if you are living for money, if you are living for prominence, if you are living for any of these things, you are like the rich fool. This man may have been rich in the things of this world, but he was eternally poor. Jesus here is saying, you need to be rich toward God. Now, don't misunderstand this as saying, those who are rich are wicked and those who are poor are godly. There are plenty of rich people out there who are Christ-honoring, and there are plenty of poor people out there that are dishonoring to the Lord. That's not the point. The point of this passage is those who are rich toward God are those who humbly submit to him and recognize the earth is his and everything that's in it. And whatever he gives me in this world, whether it be small or whether it be a lot, is to be used for his glory. You see, to be rich toward God means that you have a grip on God, and as a result of that, He has a grip on you. That changes the way you think. It changes the way you live. When God begins to have a grip on you, that infiltrates your thinking. It means that ultimately, whatever I do, whatever my job is, whatever I volunteer in, whatever church ministry I do, whatever's happening in this world, I respond to the glory of God. I want God to be exalted in this. When people see me, I want them to see my satisfaction in Christ. When God gives me a lot, I rejoice. When he gives me nothing, I rejoice. All is his. God is constantly at work around me. He goes behind me. He goes before me. He is within me. My life is lived for an audience of one. I am here for the glory of God. That is why I exist. Jesus is saying that is the person who's rich toward God. It's the person who has a grip on him, and as a result, he has a grip on them. Whereas the foolish person is the one who has a grip on possessions, and therefore has then been gripped by those possessions. That's the big point that Jesus gives in this passage. And what I think we need to be reminded of as we look at a passage like this is two things. If we look at this and ask ourselves the question, so what does this mean for me as I 
go about my life tomorrow, as I embark on a new year, as I face 2022, as I go to work, as I go home, as I'm with my children, my grandchildren, as I'm with my family members, my friends, as I'm with my church family, as I go into the community, what does a passage like this mean? Well, first of all, I think it's a reminder that every one of us should be humble. We should live with the recognition that we are here because God has brought us here. You had no control over where you were born. You had no control over who your family was. You had no control over what you look like. But God did. He was in it. And he brought you here into this world. And in his providence, he has placed you right where you are. And everything you have has come from him. So we ought to be humble. We ought to recognize God is the one who is doing all this in our lives. And in humility, we are to acknowledge him. We are to recognize him. We are to have a God focus on how we are to be living. But secondly, we are to be hopeful. We are to say that no matter what situation I'm in, because God is the one who has granted me what he has given me, I ought to be hopeful in this world. Yes, even in the midst of a world where there seems to be so much hopelessness around us. Look look what's going on in our society just in the last few years. People are scared. People are trying to get a grip on so many things. And have you noticed it's got a grip on them? And we as the people of God are to say, but if God has gone before us, if God has placed us here, if he has granted us what he has granted us, then we are to respond with hope, knowing that I might not know what tomorrow brings, but God does, and God is at work, and I ought to respond with confidence in this world to the glory of Christ. We are to show the world that God has a grip on us, that we trust him, we adore him, and we long for that day when we will see him face to face where there will be no disease, there will be no death, there will be no disasters. But until that day, we are here and we are to shine forth the glory of God. Jesus responds to a random question. As Jesus in the midst of preaching Teacher, help me divide this inheritance. Deal with the dispute in my family. And Jesus cuts past it all and says, Beware of allowing the things of this world to grip your heart. There is only one thing that ought to be gripping you, and that is the magnificence of God's glory. And if God's glory has not gripped you today, turn from your sin now. Let go of the sweet seeds of this world. Let the melon go. Come on your knees and come before the Lord and ask him to rescue you from your sins. So that that day when you do die, when you do stand before the judge who will judge with all holiness and fury, that he will accept you, not on the basis of what you've accumulated, but on the basis of the one that you hold on to. Turn today and trust in Jesus. And if you have trusted in Jesus, renew your mind. Hold on to him afresh. Hold on to him tightly. Let go of the things that will disintegrate. 
Hold on to Christ and you will see that that will actually impact how you hold on to the things that he gives you. Use what he gives you for his glory and may Christ be exalted in these things. Let me pray. Gracious and mighty God, I thank you for this parable. A very pointed one, a challenging one that cuts through so much in our lives. Forgive us, Lord, when we do grip onto things too tightly, things that are of no eternal value. Expose those things to us today so that we may let go and truly hold on to what matters. Lord, be gracious to us, be merciful, and I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.